1: First of all, let me mention three other books. I appreciate Robert mentioning Passion and Purity. There are two books on the subject of sexuality, one on masculinity called a mark, The Mark of a Man, which is written in informal notes to my nephew Pete, who is very handsome and still very single girls. his picture's on the cover. On the subject of what masculinity is all about. And on the subject of femininity, my daughter's wedding present, this was what I gave her for a wedding present, called Let Me Be a Woman. Then a real live 20th century story of a disciple, the biography of Jim Elliot, Shadow of the Almighty. And that book tells in pretty intimate detail some of his struggles over this whole business of the love life, and the book that Robert mentioned tells in greater detail uh, my struggles over that question, the framework of passion and purity, is my love life with Jim Elliott. I've entitled my talk this morning, The Dating Mess. I really hear some very sad stories. I do a lot of traveling around I speak to a lot of students, high school and college, a lot of career people like yourselves, and I get a flood of mail. I get very sad stories from both men and women, some of whom write me 10 pages, 15 pages, 20 pages, telling me about this really neat relationship that they had, which has fallen on such bad times. And the story that I hear, I suppose, repeated most often is from women who tell me about this wonderful guy, this really neat relationship, and they've both been praying about the Lord's will, and the Lord finally brings them together, it seems, and all their friends think it's wonderful, and they've had godly counseling, and the counselors tell them that it's just right, and it looks as though this is the will of God and things move on, and on, and on, and on, and on. And finally the guy says, I don't really think that you're the one for me. And he evaporates into thin air. And I really am not quite sure what is happening, but I do see this phenomenon repeated again, and again, and again. And that's one of the reasons that I particularly like to recommend the book, The Mark of a Man, because I think that there is some kind of a failure in masculinity. Now, I'm not suggesting that you are effeminate. I'm not going that far. But when I wrote my book on masculinity, I had talked to Dr. J.I. Packer, asking him what he thought the, the word masculinity meant. And Dr. Packer, without any hesitation, said responsibility it means that you must accept responsibility which involves sacrifice and commitment. And perhaps your generation has not been given very much instruction along the lines of sacrifice and self-giving. But, unfortunately, men are not being men enough, and women are not being women enough because so many women have bought the feminist doctrines that we've been taught so loudly for a couple of decades, that we're all equal. And I'm convinced that this is one of the crucial reasons why dating has become such a mess, because of feminism. I lay the blame right there, but then I would lay the blame on feminism on men, because in the last analysis the buck stops with men. God ordained that men were to be the bearers of primary responsibility. Adam was created first, Eve was created for Adam. That was the purpose of God's making the woman. She was made for the man, she was made from the man, she was brought to the man. Adam was not brought to Eve, but Eve was brought to Adam. And when Adam named her, he accepted responsibility for her. The authority to name in the Old Testament, I'm told by Old Testament scholars, signifies exactly this, that the man is accepting responsibility to care for, to provide for, to protect, or to husband. And to husband literally means to take care of. You've heard of animal husbandry. It's the care of animals, the taking responsibility. So when Eve suggested to Adam that they eat this fruit which God had forbidden, Of course, she was taking the initiative, which was wrong. She was not to be the initiator, she was to be the responder, but it was worse for Adam to capitulate and let the little woman do what she wanted to do and go along with her. We've been in a terrible mess ever since. Eve took the initiative, Adam became the responder. If Adam had dug in his heels and done what he was supposed to do as a husband, and forbidden her to do that and protected her from Satan's temptation, then it would have been a different story. But that's why we have this mess, I think. Women have become initiators and they are not only calling men up and asking for dates and all that kind of thing. And I realize that I'm talking to a very highly specialized crowd here. I know that Briarwood Presbyterian Church is a different kind of a church than most of the ones that i speak to and i know that when i'm south of the mason dixon line you people know much more about what ladies and gentlemen are than they do up where i live so i don't mean to belabor something that you don't need to hear but i think that it's possible that your thinking has also been infected to some degree by this equality notion everybody's equal we're all persons we're all interchangeable what's to stop a woman from inviting a man out for a date, or writing him a little cute note, or putting a smiley face on his textbook or something, anything to just draw his attention to the fact that her attention has been drawn to him, rather than letting him be the initiator. That's what I mean when I say men are not being men enough, women are not being women enough. So I have four things to talk about, and I am going to address my remarks primarily to you men. The women are allowed to eavesdrop and I trust that you're smart enough to f- to figure out the ways in which what I have to say to the men affect your behavior. My first plea is, be men. And your example is Jesus Christ. He was a man. He was fully a man. He was only a man. He was not only a man in the sense that you are. He was fully human, he was, of course, also God. But though he was God, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin. His primary purpose in coming to earth was obedience to his Father. He said, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God, And that should certainly be the aim of every man who calls himself a Christian. You have, in fact, no agenda other than God's. It's thy will be done, not my will be done. The rule of heaven is thy will be done. The rule of hell is my will be done. And if it's the latter that you want, then in the last analysis, it will be the latter that you get. If it's what you want, then God will ultimately allow you to have that. And under this heading of being men, I think there are five things that we need to think about. I've already mentioned the primary one, responsibility. You are to be the initiator. It is your responsibility uh, to take the blame if there is blame. It is at your desk that the buck stops. And as you perhaps may know, I'm married now for the third time, but most of my life I've been single. I'm 61 years old, I've been married a total of about 17 years, and I know what it's like to have to take all the responsibility, to make all the decisions, to support myself and my daughter. And it's a tremendous relief to me to have a husband. I have one now, and I hope he's going to last a whole lot longer than I do. And it's wonderful to me to know that when there are decisions that have to be made between the two of us, we, of course, discuss them. There aren't too many occasions when we disagree, but when we do, then... As tactfully as I can, as gently as I can, I try to present my viewpoint and I certainly let Lars know what I think about it. And sometimes he decides that I'm right. And so then we do what I thought we should do in the first place. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he decides I'm mistaken and I still think he's wrong. What happens then? Obviously, there can't be a 50-50 partnership. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition at all. It was never meant to be. One person is the leader and the other person is to be the follower. I like the analogy of the dance. One person leads and one person follows, and if both people decide they're going to lead, then, brother, there ain't gonna be no dance. And if both of them decide they're gonna follow, it's gonna be a total standstill, isn't it? And God knew that No other arrangement would work. He said in Ephesians 5 that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. He does not have an option. So you are primarily the one responsible. If finally Lars and I decide, if finally Lars decides that we are going to do this, and I think we should have done that, then I don't have to worry. I don't have to stew and get it into a frenzy because I think he's making a mistake because I know that the buck stops with him and God is going to deal with him and he has to deal with God. God is not going to ask me why we didn't do this over here. So responsibility is the first qualification of a man. You must be willing to take the blame, take it on the chin, make a decision, and take all the consequences. Secondly, you must be capable of commitment. And commitment involves sacrifice. If you say that you will be at a certain place at a certain time, brother, you get yourself there if you have to crawl on your stomach. And when you take on yourself a wife, then you are making staggeringly awesome commitments to take care of this woman, forsaking all others, You're going to take care of her in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, till death us do part. You must be a man of your word, in other words, and you will keep that word no matter what personal sacrifices you have to make, no matter how many more interesting things come along that you would rather do. And as I travel around and speak very often to singles groups in churches, you know what the singles ministers almost always tell me? They tell me that the biggest problem with the single group is that they do not make commitments and you know which comes first the chicken or the egg are you single because you are not willing to make commitments or are you not willing to make commitments because you're single and you can get away with it you know you can get away with a whole lot of things that we married people can't get away with because you're independent, nobody's really depending on you and you just sort of go with the flow and you say, yes I'll be there next Friday night unless something interesting comes along, which is a silent footnote in your mind. A Christian man is a man whose word is as good as his bond. Number three is courage. Or These are A, B and C, if we're taking notes, A, B and C under one courage, and that means the willingness to take risks. And faith always involves risks, gentlemen. I never really know for sure. I was thinking last night over some of the questions that came to me yesterday at the women's conference, and as always, if I allow myself to think over questions, then I have a, I go into agonies realizing how Poorly, I answered it, what I should have said, and there were a number of questions that I didn't get to answer, which were sort of repeats of ones that I did, and I was reading those last night that I hadn't had time to read on the platform. And several times, several different people said, How can I be absolutely sure about a decision? And what I had forgotten to say to those people is, A Christian can never be absolutely sure because we are sinners, we're fallible, we're sheep, we're stupid, we're wayward, we're ignorant, and we walk by faith. And that means that every now and then I might make a mistake. So you have to be willing to take the risk, and you take the risk by faith. You know, there was one huge decision that I had to make in my life, which probably was the most difficult that I've ever made much more difficult than deciding whether to marry the three husbands that I've married. And that was whether or not I was going to go in and live with the people who had killed my husband. I had no guarantee that they would not kill me and perhaps my daughter. She was three years old. The quechua Indians that I was living with at the time that I had to make that decision assured me that There was no danger that they were going to kill my daughter. They said they'll kill you, but they'll keep her. So that was, of course, a more frightening prospect. A bunch of naked savages taking care of my little daughter, keeping her. How could I be absolutely sure, and people ask me this question again and again, how could you be sure that it was the will of God? All I knew was I wanted the will of God. I had made up my mind when I was 12 years old, that I didn't want anything else for the rest of my life. Now, I didn't know what that was going to entail. I certainly didn't know that it was going to entail losing two husbands and making a decision like going in to live with those Indians. But God knew my heart, and God knew that I really wasn't wanting to go in there for any other reason than obedience. And so all I could do was lay the whole thing before him and say, now, Lord, I'm going to move in this direction. I wished, like everything, that I had a star of Bethlehem or a pillar of fire, which would be an unequivocal sign that this was the will of God. But I didn't have that, and God doesn't generally give us that. He's never given me any audible voices or visions or angel visitors or anything like that. I have to proceed on what seems to be right and reasonable and intelligent. and so. I'm saying that if you're going to be a real man, you must have the courage to take the risks which are involved in decisions. And one of the things that every man has to face if he's going to ask a girl, even for a date, long before he gets around to asking her to marry him, is that he might be rejected. Well, who likes to be rejected? Nobody. It's painful, isn't it? And you must take that risk. The girl could say no or she could hem and haw around in such a way that you know that she's only doing it because she feels sorry for you. I remember my, my second husband was a very tall, handsome man. He'd have been an athlete in many ways. He'd actually been a professional athlete at one point, point. and he had everything. I couldn't imagine any man like him being the least bit insecure, but he told me that all the way through high school and college, he was convinced that any girl that accepted a date with him did so out of pity. Now, I don't know if there's anybody here that feels that way or not, but that's part of the risk. You have to take the risk of rejection. You have to set your face like a flint. And that brings us back to the example of Jesus Christ. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing, as he told his disciples, that he was going to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and be crucified. Number four, no number, yes, number four is courtesy. Be a gentleman. And courtesy is a small, common, ordinary way of exhibiting the basic principle of the Christian life, which is my life for yours. I will lay down my life for you. When a man opens a car door for a woman, it's a very small gesture, isn't it? But it's a very important gesture to that woman because he is saying, you are important to me. I would like to take care of you. And the first thing that attracted me to my present husband, Lars Grin, was the fact that he was a gentleman. He is a southern gentleman. And some of you know that he lived in my house for two years as a renter. He rented a room in my house. And he treated the landlady with respect and with courtesy. And it's a nuisance, of course, to jump out of the car in the pouring rain, have to walk all the way around and stand there and wait with the door open while the girl gets her purse and her coat and all these things together while you're getting soaked and you take her in to the door. What are you saying? You're saying, my life for yours. When I pass you the salt at the table first, it's just a very tiny way of saying my life for yours. Basically that's what it is. Somebody who knew, had known Lars, my husband for much longer than I have, asked me, what was it that attracted you to Lars? And I mentioned, first of all, his courtesy, and secondly, the fact that he has a servant heart. He will do anything for anybody, and he does not expect to be thanked. And those of you that have met him at the book table know that that's the kind of a guy he is. A real man is unselfish. He has a servant heart. Jesus said, if I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, then you must wash one another's feet. The servant is not greater than his Lord. A real man is a man who will do anything. The dirtiest, lowest job that he's never going to be thanked for. And number five, to be a real man means to be pure. As Sir John Patterson, the great prison reformer, said, O Lord, make us masters of ourselves that we may be the servants of others. A real man is master of himself. He brings his body into subjection. And one of the things that attracted me to Jim Elliott was that he buffeted his body. He would not eat junk food. He was a wrestler. He was a champion wrestler. And as a matter of fact, he came from a fat family. I didn't know that when I knew him on the campus of Wheaton College, but later on I discovered that he had actually had to offend his family because he would not eat all the stuff that he called rotgut, that his sister was always cooking up and things like that. He brought his body into subjection. And it was not merely a matter of eating and sleeping and wrestling, it was a matter of his sexual desires. And I discovered that when he confessed to me that he had fallen in love with me. And we both realized that here was a tornado of passion that neither one of us was capable of handling, and so we drew a hard and fast line, hands off. And it's got to be hands off, and nowadays you even have to say clothes on. That was not a question back in my day. But to be a man means to restrain yourself, and the more you bring power under restraint, the greater that power is. A dam brings the power of water under restraint and thereby makes it useful and a racehorse is brought under restraint with reins and therefore has far greater power than the wild horse out on the hills galloping any old way he wants to in 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter we read the it is not true that the body is for lust 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. It is not true that the body is for lust. It is for the Lord. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are limbs and organs of Christ? Shall I then take from Christ his bodily parts and make them over to a harlot? Never. You know that the anyone who links himself with a harlot becomes physically one with her. For the scripture says, the pair shall become one flesh, but he who links himself with Christ is one with him spiritually. Shun fornication. and Fornication is a word that covers every kind of sexual sin. Every other sin that a man can commit is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a shrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Spirit is God's gift to you? You do not belong to yourselves. You were bought with a price. Then honor God in your body. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know what orders we gave you in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, that you should be holy. You must abstain from fornication. Each one of you must learn to gain mastery over his body, to hallow and honor it, not giving way to lust like pagans who are ignorant of God. And no man must do his brother wrong in this matter, or invade his rights. Because as we told you before with all emphasis, the Lord punishes all such offenses. For God called us to holiness, not to impurity. Anyone, therefore, who flouts these rules is flouting not man, but God who bestows upon you his Holy Spirit. I was asked to speak in a large evangelical church on the subject of the Christian, uh, the, the single Christian, and sex. Well, I didn't ask what they expected to get under that title, I just accepted the invitation, but when I stood up, I said, If you're expecting me to talk about sexual activity and a single Christian, this will certainly be the shortest talk that I've ever given. Because the scripture makes it very plain that that is ruled out, case closed. There is no sexual activity outside of marriage. And, of course, some of them, I'm sure, went out of there and said to themselves, well, this Elliot woman, you know, she's really out to lunch. But I'm reading you 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, which says, Anyone who flouts these rules is flouting not man or woman, but God who bestows upon you his Holy Spirit. And after I had given a talk like this, a, man, a young man met me out in the foyer of the church and he said, But holy cow, lady, you got to have sex. Well, I pointed out to him that Millions of men throughout history have lived pure and holy, sexless lives. And Jesus himself is our example. So to be a man means to be responsible, to be committed, to be courageous, to be courteous, and to be pure. Now secondly, I want to say that you men need to get down to brass tacks with God about this business of marriage. These are practical suggestions for any man who really does not quite know how to go about getting married, and I hope that what I have to say under this heading will make some sense to you. When I mean What I mean by getting down to brass tacks with God, if you are of marriageable age and it is a serious question in your mind as to whether or not marriage is on God's agenda for you and you don't really know, then my advice to you, and of course you're free to reject my advice, is stop dating and start praying. You may say, well, I can do both, but it'll be a lot easier to do the praying if you just call a moratorium on the dating. Remember that God wants to give you the very best. That's really what God wants for you. His will is always joy. He doesn't want anything except fulfillment and bliss. If you can just keep that in mind when you start praying, you can be sure that even if it doesn't look as though God is giving you what you thought you wanted, He's given you the very best. Remember that God has promised to help you. Of course, it's scary. Of course, there are many uncertainties. Of course, there is the possibility of rejection. But He has promised to help you, He has promised to guide you, and He knows exactly what you need. He knows what you need better than you do. What you are asking for might really be a stone. God wants to give you bread. You might be asking for a scorpion when God wants to give you a fish. Ask God to show you whether or not marriage is in the cards for you. Now that doesn't mean that you ask God to show you right now who it is that you're going to marry, but is marriage a part of the will of God. Unfortunately, so many men have probably never even prayed about this until they have gotten themselves involved with an individual. And then it becomes very, very difficult and very confusing, so my advice is quit dating, start praying, find out if marriage is part of the will of God. And if it seems as though the answer is yes, and even that you may not know for sure, but if it seems reasonable and logical to assume that God does want you to be married at some point. You're not convinced that you have any special gift of celibacy. Then begin to pray about the timing. It's reasonable to believe that the one in whose hands my times are, that's what the psalmist said, my times are in thy hands, knows how to bring across your path at the right time the right person. And you need to expect him to do that. Then, pray specifically that God will lead you to the right woman. Then, this is extremely important, ask counsel of your spiritual superiors. I would hope that every one of you knows a spiritual superior, maybe a spiritual father, a spiritual mother not necessarily somebody old enough to be your father or your mother, but somebody who knows how to pray, somebody who knows you, and somebody who knows how to keep his mouth shut. You don't want to go pouring out your soul to somebody that's going to go blabbing it all over Briarwood. So ask counsel of people who know how to pray and people who are wise and can keep silence. And then take that counsel seriously. That person may have somebody in mind for you that is a far wiser choice than the person who appeals to you, maybe primarily physically. Jim Elliott made it very plain to me that I was not at all what he was looking for physically. In fact, he wrote home to his parents that he had met this girl who was far from beautiful. I was anything but what he wanted. He wanted somebody tall, short, dark-haired, athletic, cute, outgoing, and, of course, I was none of the above. So even our personal tastes and preferences, God knows how to change and give us the person of His choice. So take the counsel of other Christians, godly people, very, very seriously. My parents prayed, I know for sure, about a certain individual to marry four out of their six children. Now, it might have been all six of them, and I need to check this out when we have a family reunion in June. But I was thinking back in my memory, and I realized that at least four of the six of us siblings were prayed for in connection with a particular individual. In fact, my sister-in-law, Loveless Odin, who is from Birmingham, was a missionary in Japan when my brother, Tom, was a teacher in England and my father was praying that God would bring those two people together. Now that's impossible, isn't it? She was a missionary in Japan, he a teacher in England. But God answered that prayer after my father had died, and he married that girl from Birmingham. My parents prayed specifically that God would bring Jim and me together. So don't discount that advice. I think it's very unfortunate that we live in a time when there is no third party arranging marriages. And you have to realize that in most of human history, most marriages were arranged by a third party. We have the example of Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for Isaac. It wasn't Abraham himself. So take their counsel seriously and believe that God can lead that person, perhaps more clearly than he can lead you because they have a more objective and a distant perspective. It would be worth your while, and we haven't got time to go into it this morning, but I would strongly urge you men to study that 24th chapter of Genesis, the story of Abraham's servant, and how he went about finding that girl. And he prayed that the woman that he chose would be God's choice. Now to me that's a very interesting sidelight on how God can guide. He prayed that he would choose a woman to ask, ask, he was going to choose to ask somebody for a drink and if she responded by saying yes, have a drink and I will also water your camels then he would know that it was the right woman. Now I'm not saying that you necessarily have to get that kind of a sign but it's very worth your while to notice that he prayed silently and watched quietly. And in a church like this, if you watch the women quietly, you can learn a great deal about them without ever having to date, let alone ever having any intimacy. Third thing, and point one was be men, point two, get down to brass tacks with God. Point three, as for dating, you must draw lines in advance for yourself about what you are going to allow in the way of physical contact. And unfortunately we have to talk about these things because there was a time when it would be unheard of for a man to touch a woman. In Paul's day, Paul said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And nowadays we've got all this huggy-poo stuff where everybody's hugging everybody else and it's just gotten to the point where the lines are all blurred and fuzzy, and nobody knows what they can gu- do. The first date that Jim Elliott asked me for was for a Bible study, and I first accepted it. Actually, he had asked me for, to go to some game, I guess it was, and then I found out that there was going to be a Bible study that same night that I really wanted to go to. So I broke the date, told him that I was going to a Bible study. And he said, great, I'll go to the Bible study, too. Let's go together. And I said, no, I'd never be able to keep my mind on the Bible study. So we'll go separately if we go at all. So that's what we did. And it wasn't, I think it was at least six months before he asked me for another date. And that time he took me to Moody Church in Chicago and we went to hear a missionary speak. She was one of the daughters of the famous missionary C.T. Studd. That was our first date and the only other one that we ever had was just a few weeks before I graduated. That The date at Moody was in April, and I graduated in May, and we went to a Foreign Missions Fellowship breakfast, which was a picnic out at a park. We didn't even go together, but it was following the breakfast that he asked to walk me home, and it was then that he revealed his love for me. So. We already knew, without having had any dates at all, except that one missionary meeting in Chicago, that this was the kind of person that we wanted to marry, just from observation. And one caution in this business of dating, uh, I didn't finish what I meant to say about drawing the lines, you must draw lines about whether, how far you're going to go. And when I tell people that Jim and I made up our minds, that we would not kiss until we were engaged, if we ever got engaged and we had no guarantee that we would. People just think that is the most ridiculous thing they have ever heard of, and as a matter of fact we didn't even hold hands for several years after we first fell in love. All I can say is, I can't tell you where you have to draw the line, but be honest with yourself and acknowledge that one thing leads to another. And if you try to tell me, holding hands doesn't mean anything, kissing doesn't do anything to me." I tell me, I tell you, you're lying, because otherwise you wouldn't do it. I mean, why would you do it if it didn't have some effect emotionally? So you must be honest before God and make up your mind where your standards are going to be. And if you've already blown it and been to, been to bed with 15, 20, 50 other women I'm speaking to you as Christian men, you know that every sin can be forgiven. God will not give back your virginity any more than he's going to give you back your leg if you chop it off, but he is going to give you back your chastity, and you can start over, and you can say from here on in it's going to be different. I've blown it, I've done it wrong, but I repent, and repentance repentance means turning around and going the other way. And number four, there comes a time when you must choose to love. Love is not mere emotions, it's not feelings, it's not a mood, and it's not a glandular condition. Love is a choice. And you must finally make a choice that you will love this woman and you will not be afraid. And I think one of the things that's holding a lot of men back is just plain fear. Fear of the economic situation, fear that you can't support this woman, fear that you can't take care of a family, fear that you might be wrong, fear that you might meet ten other people that you would like better. You don't ever have to worry about those ten other people that you might like better because you have already made a choice which is for life and you forsake all others. So this choice is never again up for grabs. Every deliberate choice made in faith, and this is the last thing I want to say to you, every deliberate choice made in faith and obedience to God will be attacked by Satan. You can count on it, because if there's one thing Satan cannot stand, it's a man who wants to obey God. So once you have made that choice, Chosen that woman, asked her to marry you, don't be surprised if you suddenly feel cold chills and you think, oh, I've made the worst mistake of my life. Read the book Mystery of Marriage, written by a man who'd been married two years. It is a blockbuster of a book. It's the best book I've ever read on marriage. You can forget all the rest of them. And in the introduction or the first chapter of that book, he tells how on his honeymoon, they visited a Trappist monastery and he was overwhelmed with the conviction that he was meant to be a monk. And here he is with his wife. A man commits his fears to God. Be men, get down to brass tacks with God, draw lines in advance if you are going to date, and ultimately you must choose to love. And I believe that you have a serious adult responsibility to move in the direction of marriage unless you have strong reason to think that that is not a part of God's will for you. God bless you.
0: I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath, are the everlasting arms.